We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Eleanor Beaton, a business coach for women, entrepreneurs, and former CEO of a communications consulting company. Eleanor explains how she went from journalist to starting her own business. Both of her businesses were prompted from someone else's suggestion, and in both cases, she was skeptical but did it anyway. As she ran her business and sought ideas and support for growing it, she noticed that the coaching and training that existed seemed to mainly speak to men or were too superficial, what she calls cosmoification. The kinds of discussions male entrepreneurs were having were different than the discussions women were having, and she wondered why and what women might be missing. Eleanor saw the issues women founders faced in her communications business, and she decided women needed support and help in ways that most of them were not getting. One observation she makes is that most of the teachings around entrepreneurship have come out of Silicon Valley and tech entrepreneurship. But service-based businesses, of which many women have, aren't being served well by these teachings. Eleanor's observations, questions, and frustrations led her to starting a podcast and developing other resources for women entrepreneurs, which has become Safi Media. She seeks to make a space where women can talk to other women entrepreneurs and learn from each other, breaking out of the quote-unquote bro culture of entrepreneurship. Now, let's get better together. Eleanor Beaton, welcome to the podcast. It's awesome to be here. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you're the founder of Safi Media, Education and Training for Women Entrepreneurs, which I think is so sorely needed. It is just baffles my mind at times that there's not more women entrepreneurs, but I do understand there's a lot of structural issues. There's a lot of life issues. There's things that need to occur <laughs> in order for us to, as a community, actually uh, help promote that and raise that up. I think the other day I read a statistic that now 10% of women run like the Fortune 1000 or the Fortune 500. So, yes, you know, it's the highest, it's ever, highest been. it's ever been. So not 50, not whatever, but <laughs> you take what you can get, I think, um, as time goes on, I think we'll really start to appreciate the different perspectives as well as, you know, opening up, especially entrepreneurship to, to more people. Because if there's one thing everyone in the world needs, 
is a bunch of smart entrepreneurs trying to solve the world's problems. And that is not limited to, as I always like to say, tall white guys with beards like me. <laughs> so That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we need to uh, encourage more entrepreneurship from everyone. But um, before we talk about that and all the great things that you're doing, as I always like to say, my first question is always the same. Tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. If there were a theme, it would really be that I begrudgingly followed suggestions that I didn't think applied to me. <laughs> so I've had two businesses. And in both cases, it was really people around me who suggested that I try this or do that. And um, I didn't think they knew what they were talking about, but I did. And it really paved the way to each of the businesses. So for example, my first business I started in my early 20s, it was a communications consulting and marketing company. Um, I was a I sort of fresh out of journalism school. And I um, was finding like this was just at the beginning of the of the death of journalism as we know it, people love to rail on journalism. But when I was working, there were actual fact checkers in newsrooms. I mean, I can remember as a working journalist, like the biggest thing I was afraid of, I would write file a story because you had to file a story every day. It would be like 5 p.m. I'd file my story that I got assigned in the morning. And then I would generally wake up at 2 a.m. paranoid that I might have gotten something wrong. That that's, that some important fact might have missed me and been overlooked by me and my fact checkers. But I digress. We can talk about that later. But no, I was I'd sort love of really to. coming up right to, yeah. at the at the downfall of traditional newsrooms. And so mm -hmm. I could see the writing on the wall, the writing on the wall. And I and um that was what I had been trained to do to be a journalist, a full-time journalist working for a newspaper or um, you know, a TV station. And so without that kind of job security, I wasn't sure how to use my skills. And my sister-in-law. And husband were like, well, why don't you start a business? And I was like, start a business? Ew, because entrepreneurship wasn't cool. It's very cool now, but it was essentially, I don't know if you remember this or if you went through this, but it used to be the thing that you did if you were a loser who was underemployed. You know, um, like if you were a loser who was underemployed, then you went and started a business. And so people would look at you with pity, like, oh, <laughs> that's so, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley, so it was a little bit different. But yeah, you know, I would say, depending on the business you'd start, yeah. I mean, that the predominant, you know, I'm Gen X, so this was about yeah. the time where, uh, you know, people were making the transition from I'm going to be in this career forever to oh, yeah, <laughs> this isn't ever going to work, right? And yes. You know, about the time of death of journalism, I think would probably be about about yeah. right. So wow. So yeah. Loser for starting. <laughs> loser for starting. Yeah. It was horrible because I was always like a high achieving person. And it was, you know, but the beauty of it is that it just built up so much sort of pent up rage that um I was able to translate into the kind of work ethic that I needed to kind of get this business off the ground. So that was my first business. And for me, this was a business and I was sort of following a very, you know, I think a lot of what we think about as entrepreneurship now has very much been shaped by Silicon Valley culture and sort of the culture of tech, of, of especially venture-backed tech or tech-enabled startups. And I think that that has really popularized and advanced some powerful notions about the world of work. But the reality is, I mean, people have been doing business for thousands of years in all kinds of different ways. And, you know, um, I ran that business as a small consulting business. And I did that as I was having kids. I've got two sons. They're now 16 and 12 when they were really little. And, um, and it was a great, it was a great business, but I could see, you know, and it was one of these things where I was like, I was working with a lot of really successful founders. There were a lot of my clients and so on, really successful entrepreneurs and business leaders and founders. And it was fantastic, but it was also the sense of, wow, these, these men and women are normal people and their businesses are a lot bigger than mine are. And they don't look at their labor as kind of the core skill set here. Um, or even leveraged labor, you know, they don't look at it. They're, they're really sort of developing products and thinking about things differently. 
um, why aren't I having these kinds of conversations in the business groups that I'm a part of? And so, um, so that was kind of interesting. This, this was sort of buzzing around in my head and I saw the inherent lack of scalability in the business that I had. And then, um, somebody said to me, I think you should take this, uh, sort of consulting that you're doing. I think you should start doing developing training programs for folks. And I was like, oh, I don't do that. Gross. Like no training people and getting in there and helping them develop like, no, thanks. You know? (laughs) And so I did it again. So I listened to her. I tried it out and found that I was good at it, that I liked it. And also that while this type of model, the way that I wanted to deliver it wasn't say as scalable as a software as a service solution. It was, it ultimately had a lot more scaling potential than what I was doing beforehand. And so I essentially shut down my first business because I didn't have, I wasn't smart enough to have set it up to really sell. And um, started this new business. And initially it was really about sort of uh, communication presence, leadership development, coaching for women. And um, at, over time, it really, so that sort of started in 2014. And over time that evolved into really focusing much more on the women's entrepreneurship market and really making sure that women entrepreneurs have access to the type of training that I needed earlier in my career as an entrepreneur and didn't get. Yeah. Huh. That's how it so, happened, Jari. Yeah, that's what it is from, yeah. <laughs> from uh, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> so, um, so you mentioned, uh, wow, this is still like a lot of really good stuff to, to think about. Um, how come, how come women weren't getting the training that they needed? I mean, you clearly mm. found a gap in the marketplace, but I mean, what, yeah. what, what was it that was the, the spark of that? I mean, you know, I, I, I've, I've mentored a lot of like young people in entrepreneurship and it was really clear that a lot of the ones from <clears throat> disadvantaged neighborhoods and places that normally don't, you know, see people like me walking around, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> just didn't have the exposure. Like, yeah. They didn't know they could do it. I'm just curious if it's, how did it all come about? Cause I'm again, so fascinated by how we can make this more of a, cool thing to do. Well, now it's cool, but you know what I mean? Like open it up to more people. Well, I mean, I think that's a great question. And again, I, I think there's a couple of different worlds of entrepreneurship. There is, again, there's the world and ethos of Silicon Valley style of entrepreneurship and its approach to entrepreneurship, um, which is undeniable in its value creation undeniable and how it's shaped how we look at entrepreneurship generally. Um, And I think when you're inside that world or inside that ecosystem, there's a language, there's an approach to looking at things like risk. There is um, an approach to starting and exiting businesses. There's an expectation of failure. There's, There's this whole sort of vibe and energy and approach and language and worldview that is not necessarily the same Um, When you start to look at uh, the world of entrepreneurship that runs parallel, you know, so these are, and it could be brick and mortar businesses. It could be your massage therapist. It could be your chiropractor who has a practice that has, you know, six other, you know, uh, modality people working with her. There's a ton of businesses in that space. And what I noticed in, um, you know, as I was growing my business was two things. It was kind of like the cosmofication of women's entrepreneurial education, meaning it was either really kind of shallow or was um, off the mark in terms of it, it sort of pretended that a lot of these small businesses were actually just um, little big businesses that hadn't grown up yet. So let me give you an example. Huh. So cosmofication means that that the the business advice was all about you have to be really confident. You need to own your worth and unleash your value or whatever it is. Like you know this kind of very sort of very popular psychology is though what we all really needed to grow our businesses was just comp, just more confidence, you know? And um, meanwhile, the conversations that I can remember having a really good friend who, who started a business at the same time. 
he had access to these networks that I didn't access because uh, kind of, it was just kind of a boys club and, and there's nothing wrong with a boys club other than just, you know, maybe more people could be involved in it. Like, you know, like, no, it's no, just, right. No, agreed. Yeah. They're not right? very open to the other. And not yeah. necessarily. And point of view, you know, yeah. I mean, he, yeah. So, so he had his group of friends and I would hang out with us sometimes. And I was realizing these guys are having different conversations. For instance, it never occurs to them that they have to work to get money to fund their business growth. They are looking at who would invest in this. And that was a conversation that a lot of women entrepreneurs were not having, not once. And I was like, why is this not happening? Why is nobody, they were they were working as soon as they could to stop delivering the service that they'd initially used to start building their business that was a conversation that was not happening in these Cosmo business classes, you know, and if anyone who formerly worked at Cosmo and I know it employs good journalism, we're back to that, but you know, there's definitely some good journalists working there, but it's a theme that I'm going for. No, no, no. Super superficial, right? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. So, I mean, you know, I, I, am a writer. I, I, I write books. I love writing books. I always, so and copywriting and stuff. And I always tell people, yeah. they're like, how do I write better headlines? I say, go read Cosmo. They're like, yeah. well, what do you mean? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, look, <laughs> look, they are A plus rock stars they with a capital cool. R on getting you to notice headlines when you're walking through the checkout, right? I go, it, it in that in tablets, I go, it is a yes. master's class in persuasion to you totally. to get to read the next line. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, look, yeah. they're there for a reason. <laughs> they are. And it's, you know, exactly. And it's, and it was like, you know, a lot. So there was that side of things. And then, and then there's also, there was also this whole body of, of like, um, you know, entrepreneurship education that was being made available through a lot of the different, you know, organizations and so on that I was going to, that was all about building culture and leading teams, not understanding that for instance, in Canada, 80% of all women owned businesses do under a hundred thousand dollars in revenue a year. So they're just 100%. That is not the information that is necessary to really support those entrepreneurs to scale. So it was just this, what I consider to be a gross missing of the mark. And I think that's changed over time, but there were a lot of really practical conversations that weren't happening that I felt, um, you know, I was really missing out on. And I, I was quite frustrated by it to be real with you. Like I was really frustrated with it. And so initially, you know, it started through things like podcasting and I, I, as a former journalist, you know, your ability is to get the information and share it in a way that's relevant. And so that's really how this, um, you know, Safi media started and grew. And again, I think it's just, you know, the, I think the broader lesson here is like, for the next generation of entrepreneurs is that it's easy to get stuck thinking you really know yourself or that this is how I've created success. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And sometimes it takes other people to kind of ask the questions to, um, to kind of encourage you to move beyond that comfort zone. So that has been really important to me. Hmm. It's super interesting. It's uh huh, gosh, the cosmoification. <laughs> I've never heard that before, <laughs> and I really love that. And I'm going to definitely steal that because I oh, it, well. But what, what's interesting is that the, I mean the 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 truth is, it's it, it, it's it's like oh we you know we know what you like or or it's an assumption that we can't have the same conversations with everyone as entrepreneurs. Like every entrepreneur has the same exact problems. It doesn't matter your gender, your race, your religion, your creed, where you live, who you have sex with, who, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like it's all exactly the same. And the education, the opportunity, because I believe in, you know, the equal opportunity because results are very, I mean, it's just such a hard job. You don't even know. Sometimes you could have the best idea and it just doesn't work out. But being able to have the dialogue in a language that everyone understands, I think is super important. And with, but I I mean, I do 
of course, recognize that in some cases, the delivery of the information needs to be changed. And when you were talking about the Silicon Valley culture or the culture of tech, <laughs> the only thing I want to think about is like bro culture, bro culture. I was like in my head, right? I'm like, yeah, it's pretty bro-y. And that's not in- indicative of um, being uh, inclusive, so to speak, because- well, and uh, the thing that's, Yeah. And the thing that's so interesting about this, like I was doing some personal research recently. And so I was uh, just taking a look at, you know, the, the sort of top podcasts on Spotify and iTunes, et cetera. And, you know, it's guys like Joe Rogan, um, Huberman Lab podcast, Lex Fridman. So these are interesting conversation-based podcasts, the Tim Ferriss show. And what was really interesting to me as I was looking through these podcasts, it kind of epitomizes where my business kind of came out of and some of the challenges that I was seeing. So I was seeing like there was entrepreneurship education for women, which felt it felt it oscillated between Cosmo and like big corporate. It didn't feel real or practical enough to, to me. And, um, and so there was that, you know, side of things. And then when, when you start looking at, for instance, top podcasts, what is so interesting is that most of them so we were doing an analysis of who who's what are these podcasts and if we look at their last 20 guests let's try to ascertain what we can about these shows based on the guests. So you know what's coming. So we were looking at the shows and PS I listen to these shows and like them. This is not a criticism at all. You talk to who you talk to. But by and large over well over 80 85% of their guests were other guys like them. And so the conclusion, and there were there of the women-owned show, there were very few women-run shows in the top in the top 20, but they all were speaking to both men and women. And so what you find is when guys talk to guys, that's just the call, it's for everybody. When women talk to women, it's just for women. <laughs> you know, so it's like there's kind of the culture and the counterculture. And so um, that is an interesting data point to me. It's a really interesting thing. And again, this is not about canceling anybody. It's not even about criticizing it, but it is about, huh, this is, this is interesting, you know? And, um, I think it's one of the reasons why women will sometimes want to have women focused, you know, um, entrepreneurship education, because, regular entrepreneurship education actually doesn't feel like it's made for them. It's actually mostly a lot of guys yeah. talking about the crack, the art of entrepreneurship. Yeah. And again, there's, I, you know, I could sit here and criticize that. Um, I definitely think being aware of it is useful for everybody, but I mostly only talk to women on my stuff. So I could be equally criticized for being a part of the problem. Uh, well, I mean, I mean that's a valid point, but I I think what's really interesting, especially about the medium of podcasting, um, mm-hmm. I actually try to, you know, I want to reach the widest audience of up and coming entrepreneurs as I can, and yeah. I I do consciously try to have a diversity of thought and a diversity of all sorts of different people. That's why I say all sorts of entrepreneurs, right? Yeah, yeah. and even for me, it's hard because. There's not a lot of, you know, I don't get access to a lot of women entrepreneurs, right? For whatever mm-hmm. reason. And mm-hmm. I try and I have a lot of yeah. women entrepreneur friends, but it's just funny because you're right. It's like the conversation is more obviously more comfortable if like if you if you relate or whatever. Now, what's yeah. what's nice though about entrepreneurship, and I think this is changing and I like this type of thing, is yeah. that more of the younger generation, Jen millennial Gen Z, a lot of Gen Zs are like, well, you just got to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be in my side hustle and this whole thing. So right. the more I talk with them, it's like, that's just the way they are. It's like, it's cool, right? Like, you know. <laughs> it is cool. They made it cool, right? <laughs> they did. They really did. But I do think the diversity of thought and mm. the diversity of folks in general to entrepreneurships only over time going to be better, increase. And I think that different perspectives are very valuable. And the one thing that this nailed home to me is I was in Atlanta, Georgia. I used to be a um, publicist for professional athletes. One of my athletes was going to Atlanta, talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs. 
and it was a diversity, like mostly uh, African-American entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I remember we're trying to get like all sorts of people you can meet, you know, whatever. And I met this one African-American woman entrepreneur. It was the only one that was there because the only one yeah. I guess we could find. And I just yeah. remember talking to her and she's like, who do you think can better serve the African-American woman? Me or some guy like you? I mean, she even said someone like you. And I'm like, <laughs> probably you. She's like, yes. And you know how big the market is? And she did like hair extensions and all these other like African-American yes, hair products. Yes, yes. Like, yes. do you know how big that is? I'm like, I don't even want to know. She's like, it's billions. Untapped. Yes. Untapped. Yes. And she's like, why don't people put money into me? And I'm like, wow, that's a valid point. You know why? <laughs> this is so, so these uh, researchers from Harvard Business School did a fascinating study of product hunt. It's product hunt, right? Yes. Yes. yes and they were hunt. looking at, and what they were looking at was, I mean, and it can make or break a product yeah. launch. Especially it's a SaaS really product. influential. Yeah. Especially a SaaS product. And it can also really make or break like how how much funding they get. Is the product abandoned? You know, is the tech is the is is it abandoned after? So what they were finding was that on that platform, uh products or you know products that were developed for the women's market regardless of whether they were created by male, all male teams um, did a lot. Their launches were, did much more poorly. They were much more likely to abandon the product within the course of the next 12 months and secured a lot less funding. And they really sort of were able to equalize between how successful the products were going in. And it just sort of reinforced. However, there were some days that they could tell that the users and reviewers on Product Hunt were, there were much higher numbers of women. And on those days, that divide equalized as did the long-term success of the product. And so I think to, to that lady's point, it is this idea of there is something really powerful about perspective, about feedback, you know, and about also this idea that, because it's interesting, products that were just for guys, it was, there was no impact. So in our culture, guys talking to guys is just the culture. Yeah. Um, women, it's not, it's not the culture. It's just for us. It's like a, it's like a, a target group yeah. where it's crazy. Cause it's like 50% of the population. Oh, sometimes so over that. Is <laughs> over. Yeah. yeah I mean. And it's, so it's, it's interesting. Like it's, it's fascinating. It's frustrating, but I also think it's, um, it's useful. It's useful to me to have, to have these conversations and, and with guys, with guys, cause you yeah. know, I don't think anybody, I don't think, you know, there's a lot of unintentional bias that happens. Yeah. There's that in, in, I, which I, I agree with. Well, you know, what's funny is, um, you know, of course I live in San Francisco, you know, which a lot of people that listen to this show also li- listen to, and yeah. I talk to people, you know, all around the country. They're like, what's it like to live in San Francisco? I hear all these crazy things. Right. And <laughs> it's true. We're a little bit of a nutcase. There's a little schisms most of the time. Yes. Generally people are like, you know, like any place, I don't believe the news on any other place either, unless I go there. Because most people, look, they want to, they want their family to be safe. They want to have a good life. Yes. They don't really care. Most people are like, whatever. I mean, we're, you know, I mean, in America, I'm sure it is the same way in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's like, just leave me alone and let's just have, have a good yeah. time. Right? <laughs> um, what's really fascinating is all of this, um, the challenges around language and about talking to different people and what we call things and all these sort of things. And it's just hilarious to me, the kind of disconnect between all of this stuff. And I think it goes to the kind of the echo chamber of what people really want to, um, you know, what they really talk to each other about. Right. And, and I know, I remember when, you know, I, when I was a publicist, most of my players were African-American, so I would be in their communities, right? Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. screaming at the top of their lungs about the unfairness and all that. And, 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 and you know, all of it's valid. You go there and you see it. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, this is crazy. But yeah. what's interesting is I always tell them, I said, you've already convinced yourself. Now you have to convince people like me. And they're like, mm. well, what do you mean? It's like when I start talking about it, the majority is when people, mm. the majority starts to listen. 
That's mm. the exact premise behind the book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, that I wrote in 2017 and this podcast. Yeah. It's yeah. all about like, if I start talking about it now, who am I? But like, look, the mainstream or the dominant whatever mm-hmm. guys mm-hmm. need to bring this to the other people that need to pay attention, right? In a way that's, of mm-hmm. course, kind and considerate, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I just find mm-hmm. it fascinating beyond all fascination that we would separate out almost half the population from a opportunity that is just ripe for innovation and just building a better life that completes them. It's just, I, I don't get it. And I don't, well, I do get it. And, and I sort of don't, you know? Yeah. And, and to your point though, yeah. Like to your point, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is really challenging right now is the fact that you can't, um, there we've kind of unfortunately um disabled a lot of debate you know and so uh, there's and there's a reason for that so you've got like there's a ton of polarization we talk about it in canada we talk about a lot the polarization that's happening south of the border for you guys but we have it here as well that there's just sort of culturally this kind of polarization and unfortunately if you're a fairly centrist person the challenge with centrist people is that we don't say anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we're like, both of you guys are ridiculous. We don't say anything and yeah. we allow our culture to be overtaken by crazy people. And so, for example, <laughs> there's so many, you know, cases in which I'm like, you have to under, you, you can't possibly imagine that it's wrong for people to have to be, to be able to debate this issue. You know, you, you honestly aren't telling me that we can't discuss this and that even discussing it is wrong or that even asking the question is wrong. And so I really feel like there's a, you know, there's just a a huge opportunity for centrists to, 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 to speak up. And we generally don't No, That's what defines us. Yeah. We're busy, like (laughs) trying to live and like rolling holding our up eyes. The whole, the, like, damn yeah. Economy. Holding up the rest yeah. of the world. Well, I always say, you know, you know, again, like I'm in San Francisco, right? The liberal pinko commie progressive yeah, center of the universe right. that everyone looks at like, Oh my God, all these, you know, crazy shit. Right. Well, the thing that's really fascinating is, is that's the fringe, right? Most San mm. Franciscans literally just want the garbage picked up. They don't want their car broken into. They don't want to see homeless people. Yeah on the street. They think it's almost cruel what, what happens with the homeless. I know that's yeah. for me, it is. And mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the fringe far, far left progressive does not really define the, the normal folk trying to, trying to do their daily life. And to your point, like it's hard to kind of get out of that bubble, but every once in a while, every once in a while, the centrists, win (laughs) and it stand up and we stand up we have enough (laughs) we have enough of the shenanigans to put our foot down and uh that happened with the school board in san francisco where like incompetence to a level of incompetence that's almost criminal and Mm. the the parents you know because i have a stepdaughter that's in in public school and you know so i understand some of this not a ton of it but like i I could Mm -hmm. see Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, not going back to school, all these silly things they were doing. And people yeah. just got fed up to the point where they recalled three of them. They're like, you're done. And this this is like, I mean, you know, like that takes a lot, right? And they even recalled the DA. They recalled the DA. And I mean, you know, again, like. Oh, that's right. I knew yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Bodine. Yes. Um, uh, Chelsea Bodine. But it's like. Every once in a while, it gets to the point where everyone's like, okay, enough, (laughs) just enough, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, even down here with the Trump, you know, uh, phenomenon, as I'll say it, um, it was interesting because a lot of people in San Francisco were just offended and appalled and these racists and they're all white supremacists. I mean, just litany of things. You couldn't even like debate you know, whatever. No. Like again, I'm not. I, I'm not a Trump person. I don't like his mm-hmm. ethos at all. I, I, I just yeah. have a fundamental problem with his morality. But the fact of the matter is, people voted for him. He got elected, and you can debate however you want. But right. So yeah. 
a lot of Let's, people voted for him. Yeah, a lot of people voted for him. And, and not all of them were white supremacist racists. <laughs> I can guarantee you that because my dad, who is not that, voted for him, even though I'm like, really, dad? <laughs> Like yeah. really, yeah. Like, and he's. You I know, know a lot of people who voted for him personally. Yeah, and I remember. Yeah, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a convenient argument, um, and it isn't actually reflected in truth. And that is, it's that that's complicated. The brain doesn't like things that are complicated, um, and it's so difficult to, to, you know, again, it's very difficult to talk about. It's very difficult to find moderate people or centrist people who are willing to have the conversations because nobody wants to get canceled. Yeah. Yeah. It's silly. You know what I mean? Like we can't talk about like, yeah. How are we not going to like, so I always, when I, you know, again, because I've got friends all over the country. I've got family in the Midwest. Yeah. Got some that are generally more conservative than most, right? I mean, I live in a liberal city. Yeah. I know a lot of, right? And then what's fascinating is that that cancel culture, yet mm-hmm. I always think of it as, so for me, I want intellectual honesty and what um, William F. Beckley called uh, intellectual combat. And, and he mm-hmm. used this term and he was a very, I don't know if you know him, but he was like a conservative um, mm-hmm. pundit, right? And yeah. he challenged all sorts of things in a way where like he was on this show called Firing Line, which was as a kid, I watched this religiously. Like this guy is really like, like I, I felt <clears throat> there's an honesty to it. There's a, there's a uh, intellectual curiosity and honesty that he is, he is like, I just don't like your idea, but you're still a cool guy or whatever, or gal or yeah. whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he, it was that, right? So that's the one of the things that really bothers me about, to your point, about how we're yeah. not talking about the things that need to be talked about. Um, I think as a Gen Xer, like, I don't care. I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about and bring it on, <laughs> you know, like, Come on. That's right. You know, I, I'm, I was a latchkey kid that grew up like, on yeah, Hungry exactly. Man yeah, Dinners. I was a latchkey kid. I've been self-soothing for a long time. Yeah, I, I don't mean, need your approval. No no one's coming to save me. All right? Like, <laughs> exactly. come on. Really? Like, you know, we but should- But you, know, you know, like, <laughs> I, oh, I, I, like the whole, um, and this came up at a Netflix special. I'm also a Gen Xer. And it was so funny. She was talking about being a Gen Xer and like growing up in the 80s and the ad that would come on at 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? Like, I remember being nine years old and playing in and by the river, mm-hmm. like a fast moving river all day long. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, you know, free range kids, unbe- like we were completely <laughs> free range. Yeah. But you know, some time ago, I was hearing this great talk by this guy, uh, Vernon Jordan. I think mm-hmm. that was his name is us Senator. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about his friendship with Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And he said that she, when she was the publisher, uh, basically every Wednesday, she would have cocktails at her place from from between five and six. And she would invite um, a a collection of politicians and, and, you know, their sort of people that surrounded them. And so you never knew who you were going to run into there. She insisted that everyone was civil and they were. And um, he actually credited in this talk some of that increase in polarization and increasingly dysfunction, you know, in government to her death Mm. because her son didn't actually continue these Mm. parties. Mm. And suddenly it was actually something subtle, but very powerful and important. And, you know, the economy generally and entrepreneurship, like we know as entrepreneurs is how key it is to niche down and how our economy, the world of business has become increasingly specialized. And unfortunately that's, I think that that sort of trend that the increasing trend towards specialization is part of the problem because, you know, unlike Gen X latchkey kids where there were like two shows that you could, there was like two channels, every, you know, like PBS, right? Yeah. PBS and your local cable and everybody's watching the same movie, right? Like that's where I watched firing line was on PBS. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a lot of people watching firing line 
a lot of people from different stripes. And so you had to, you weren't able to be in echo chambers the way, you know, we're really set up to be in echo chambers, the way algorithms support the creation of echo chambers. So it's a totally different, you know, um, 100%, 100%. totally different world. Yeah. It's so, so true. I think somebody that, needs to start a not a, a non echo chamber. Yeah. I think Gen Z realizes that, you know, yeah. it's funny because you talk with a lot of Gen Z and they look at their millennial parents or, yeah. you know, maybe their Gen X parents. And then they look at the boomers, at least down here. Right. And they literally blame like, you know, the millennials blame their parents and there's all this like infighting because yeah. millennials or whatever. And the Gen Z folk are just sit there going, well, we're screwed. Like, what the hell do yeah. we do? <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> y'all are fighting, right? Like, how am I? I look, I just want to like not, you know, want to have it, you know, and they're actually more conservative, which is super fascinating mm. because millennials are more yeah. liberal, but the generation coming up, yeah. they're like, of course, rebelling against their parents. So they look at Gen X. Gen Z looks at Gen X and says, okay, tell us what's real. Yeah. And, and, and with the reverence that we would expect with, with the, yeah, get <laughs> your, get out of your, the reverence, get out expect. of your private pity party and get your, get That's your right. shit together. <laughs> exactly. It's as it should be. Yeah. World order. It's finally, yeah. yeah. finally, right. Like we get our shot, right. But I, know. I, I find it fascinating to no end because, you know, I work with a lot of now uh, Z's and millennials and, you know, it, it's funny because um, just what they worry about and kind of like, well, I don't know my place in the world. Like the American dream for them is pretty much broken down here just because yeah. of what happened with the rest of the generation and how, you know, how things kind of went south or more importantly, really things are just not going well for them. And, and I think they're going to kind of demand a kind of mm -hmm. back to reality. I mean, some of this you know, if you call it wokeism or what have you, uh, whatever you want to call it on both sides, it's like not productive. Like mm -hmm. let's solve problems. Like I, 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 I'm, I'm more pragmatic than most. So if yeah. there's a good idea on the right or the left and it solves a problem, let's solve the problem. I don't, who, you know, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of times, um, you know, people like, Oh, Trump's such a horrible president, whatever, whatever. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I'm not a fan, but one thing he did, right is he accelerated the COVID vaccine. Now, you may debate on whether or not, you know, you could have your conspiracy or whatever, but yeah. just look at the data and you can, you can see that that was a miracle almost, like pretty yeah, yeah. hardcore that that happened. And you can see other ways where it is good to have difference of opinion in mm -hmm. the COVID. The COVID well, also, it's, it's interesting not a Trump fan. However, it's interesting. I was listening recently to footage of a uh, a meeting that he was having with European leaders. And this was several years ago. And he was really saying to the Germans that, listen, um, you really need to make sure that your army is where it needs to be because of what could happen between Russia and Ukraine. It was essentially something like this. And, and of course, they hadn't been investing in, in, you know, no. their sort of military infrastructure. And nope. quite honestly, a lot of Europe is a bit of a basket case right now as mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this major conflict? It's very yeah. serious. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. And, and, you know, I think what's interesting is just being able to have the space to be able to freely talk about it. It is, it is really sort of taking a look at the facts you know, um, of the situation, being able to talk about them without being concerned about being cast, yeah. you know, yeah. by either side, uh, you know, it, and I think that is a, it's a huge issue that limits innovation. hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, the other thing that, that Trump did was his dealings with China for us in the U S we, we were so yeah. dependent on China and people were going crazy about what well, tariffs, what are you doing? Well, like we were playing a game that we were not winning. And, and mm -hmm. you just look at all the supply chain issues. I mean, just like how yeah. now we've got seven, 8% inflation. It's, 
because of the lockdowns in China and our absolute mm-hmm. dependence yeah, on their right. manufacturing. The thankfully, yeah, you know, thank, thankfully, you know, for, for food and other things, we, we were, we're pretty self-sufficient, but mm-hmm. there's a huge vulnerability yeah. that no one wanted to deal with. They're like, oh, free chuff. I mean, cheap stuff. You're like, yeah, but like we're completely <laughs> hollowing out the core of America you know, good blue collar jobs and manufacturing and the trades are going away. Like mm-hmm. what happens if someone that doesn't want to go to school, look at the student debt, like you really, okay, you go to college, mm-hmm. like are you really, you know, like. Yeah. It's hard. basically a high school diploma. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. and it, and there's all this debt that we do down here and all that sort of stuff. It's just silly. And so really, you know, I think, you know, the, of course the entrepreneur mindset, the whole, um, for me, like having a more uh, equitable, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur community will build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world because entrepreneurs by nature can adapt and adjust and are pragmatic to solve problems and don't really have dogma. There's no, there's no dogma when I've got to do blah. <laughs> like, okay. Like. It's true. I think, yeah. And I think that's a huge, um, it, entrepreneurs are both incredibly independent, but not like farmers independent. So for instance, I don't know if you know a ton of farmers. I know quite a few farmers and because of, especially farmers in a supply chain in a supply managed, uh, supply managed situation who have like quota, they are the Kings and Queens of independence because all they need to do is have complete dominion over their farm and meet their quota. And so if somebody's mad at them, if if this or that, like they, they are very, very independent entrepreneurs, we have to work inside an ecosystem. So we're both independent, but we also have to be incredibly pragmatic. Not the farmers don't, right. But we have to have to, we have to get buy-in. We have to be able to get some consensus. We have to be able to be relatively pragmatic because we eat what we kill and so it's a really useful, you know, thing for us to, I, and I agree, I think the next generation of entrepreneurs and building a more entrepreneurial culture becomes really key to having these, these conversations. And um, yeah, and I mean, it's there, it's totally necessary. And, and I mean, PS, the other thing is like to demonizing anything or any group of people, you need to be really careful about doing that and and what it says about you and um the impact that that has yeah 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 i always take the uh reverse it so any any argument if you say this then i go okay what happens if the opposite happened and if they're incongruent i'm like well that's a horrible argument like you can't say oh ban this certain thing because it's bad and then if you do the converse no you just can't that's not gonna work right so yeah yeah well, you know, Eleanor, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, I love the fact that it's what you're to trying to do. Yeah, I love the fact of, of yeah. what you're trying to do. If there's anything we can do to help that out, please let us know. And uh, everyone should check out your site. Um, it'll be links in the show notes. And uh, good luck. Stay safe and thank you. keep in touch. Thanks, Eleanor, for an awesome interview. I am so supportive of people just like you trying to broaden the pool of entrepreneurship, especially for women. Uh, It's really important to uh, make this type of business, job, vocation, aspirational, whatever you want to call it, uh, available for as many people as possible. So as promised, here are the actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Eleanor. Eleanor describes how she met suggestions from others with skepticism. However, she tried out starting her own business and hasn't looked back. Sometimes what might be holding us back is our own discomfort and judgments. Yes, absolutely, 100%. So being an entrepreneur is not for everyone, obviously. But there are certain times where pushing outside your comfort zone and trying it or being more entrepreneurial at work or what have you um, is important for growth. So ask some of the questions like, am I really not ready? Am I, am I ready to be an entrepreneur? Do I really want to do this? 
Is there something that I'd like to try out? Maybe you could do a side hustle. Maybe you could start that way. It's good to experiment. And nowadays, I mean, you could pretty much do anything online and it's really super easy, quote unquote, or it's easier than it used to be. There are limits to scaling a service-based business. If you're not sure how to grow your business, it might be time to approach things differently and actually get some help. So yes, service businesses typically, right, are you, the solopreneur or entrepreneur, providing some sort of service that you're basically swapping your time for money, right? A lot of services businesses are this way. So if you're starting to reach the point where you're just working so much and so much, like what are you supposed to do? You should ask questions like, can I deliver this service more efficiently through automation? Do I have uh, processes in place to make it easier for people to get on board? Or onboarding is one major one where you could maybe hire someone to just do the onboarding with you. Are there forms that they can fill out, etc.? So, um, yeah, if you're reaching that limitation, it is definitely good to talk to someone about it. And, you know, there's lots of resources out there uh, for service-based businesses. You could even talk to Eleanor. Consider if there's a segment of the market whose needs aren't being met. How can you help that segment? What might you need to do differently? So this is what Eleanor did, right? Found a segment, education for entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, all that stuff out there was super bro-y or super cosmoification, which I just love that word. And it wasn't really practical and or didn't speak to her. So she decided, I'm just going to build it myself. That happens a lot. You see a lot of this, especially in communities that are underserved and or that don't understand, you know, mainstream doesn't understand the niche. So definitely look at those sorts of things. If you are someone who is like an expert in something that uh, people may need, it's always also a good way to go. So there you have it, the actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Eleanor. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.